Hello, and thanks for tuning in to New Covenant Conversations. I'm Stuart Elliott, the co-host for this podcast. This episode is part one of a two-part episode, and it's on hermeneutics, which is an area of theology that deals with how we interpret the scriptures. I was struck recently by a quote from T.S. Eliot. He said, Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? In an age of endless information, it strikes me that we seem to lack the basic framework to deal wisely with all the information that we're presented. I think this is especially true when we approach the scriptures. Never before have Christians had such access to the scriptures and access to a seemingly endless supply of information regarding the Bible, but information must be interpreted and applied wisely. That, I believe, is the task of biblical hermeneutics. In this episode, my dad and I discuss what we believe to be a wise framework for interpreting the scriptures. And so we hope you enjoy the conversation, and please stay tuned for part two. Welcome to New Covenant Conversations. We hope we have returning and new listeners with us today. Uh, I'm Gary Elliott, your host, and I'm glad that we're continuing uh, now with our third episode about covenant theology and our preparation for getting into the study, the biblical study of the covenant. Uh, I'm joined by my son, Stuart Elliott, uh, early on the farm out in the high latitudes. Uh, Also, I want to thank Stuart. Uh, He's the technical wizard behind the production of uh, New Covenant Conversations, along with his brothers and sister who have all contributed And uh, this is also a ministry of New Covenant um, Temple Foundation, Inc., uh, that was made possible by the elders, deacons, and congregation of Brookwood Presbyterian Church. So thank you all for joining us again. Uh, Stuart, I know you have some uh, ideas about uh, things to discuss today. Yeah. So we're, like you said, continuing on from our first two discussions, um, and we've been laying some foundational work, some spade work for talking about covenant theology, defining what covenant theology is, and um, hopefully giving a, a big picture uh, view of covenant theology and how it really provides the foundation and basis of, of approaching Scripture. So we've talked a bit about the importance of developing covenant theology. We've talked about one of the fundamental categories, um, which is the creator-creature distinction. Um, and how that might be important to have in mind, a solid category to have in mind um, as we're developing further our study and understanding of covenant theology. Um, so um, I wanted to just real quick recap that discussion, just take a moment or two, just so that we have that fresh in our mind. Um, the creator-creature distinction is that distinction that that recognizes that God is distinct from the creation. And uh, as we discussed last episode, that means that we're not in a process of becoming divine. You know, we were made in God's image and he declared that good. And so our creatureliness is a part of God's original goodness. Um, And so that, that helps to hedge in what we do in developing a theology it helps to guard us from developing categories in theology, which which uh, dip us into sort of a pagan dualism uh, on the one hand, or kind of a pantheism, making God part of the creation on the other hand. 
And uh, I think you can see um, how that, uh, when you think of pagan religions, pagan philosophies, we really do see how um, that is an easy error to slip into. Even we think historically with the church, sometimes the Christian church has slipped into that error as well. So this becomes a really important distinction and an important category to have in place at the get-go. Actually, I think that's also rooted in the original sin and the temptation to Eve and to Adam, uh, which eventually we'll get into. But it seems that part of that um, temptation was to transcend the limitations of being human. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, has become a seed that has brought rotten fruit throughout the history of the church. And every generation of Christian believers faithfully must contend with that and with the uh, otherness of God and yet the knowability of God all on God's terms. Mm. That is also uh, covenantal Mm. to the core. Mm. Good. So um, there's a lot more to dive deeper into there, but we're going to continue sort of a foundation laying approach uh, building off of that. And I think um, in my mind, and this might not seem, this might seem, a little counterintuitive at first, but but to my mind, the discussion needs to go to the topic of hermeneutics. And uh, that's a big kind of uh, $20 word, I guess, in theology, uh, which many people might not be uh, super familiar with. Um, and let's take a moment to to bring that word down and just give it a basic definition. What are we talking about when we're talking about hermeneutics? Right. It's how we go about interpreting and understanding Scripture. Uh, We start with our view of Scripture, Mm -hmm. and and that is that it is God's true word to us. It has been initially given by the uh, uh, creative breath of God, the word of God. It has been providentially preserved for us. We won't get into a lot of detail about that other than it's our conviction that, that the Bible uh, having come to us through the original autographs, the original first-time writings, mm-hmm. and then having been preserved and also having been translated in viable ways so that we can have confidence that we have the true Word of God. Uh, and then we must address how we are to understand the true Word of God um, over the time and different writers and different um, styles and uh, even the different types of literature that are combined into the Bible all uh, have their place in the way we go about understanding the Bible, um, that it is with authority. It is uh, presented to us to be known, to be studied, but at the same time, it's not left up to everyone's uh, individual imagination to to sort of sort out for themselves whatever they think the Bible says. So that's kind of the um, what does this passage mean to me approach. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm. And that, that's very common. Yeah. And at a level of personal devotion, we certainly champion wanting to apply the scripture to all our life and individually to our life of faith, mm-hmm. uh, of worship, and the way in which we live out that which we believe. And so, you know, we don't want to denigrate uh, the devotional aspect to really searching out the Word of God and how valuable it is to us individually. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that it's open to private interpretation to make it say whatever we want it to say. Right, right. So hermeneutics then is is that, uh, that 
approach uh, to really any text, but of course, biblical hermeneutics is a thing all of its own, but really you're just, you're building meaning, trying to understand the meaning of of communication. Um, and of course, we do this all the time, don't we? We have to interpret, you know, forms of communication to understand what what the meaning that's being uh, communicated is. So, um, yeah, for instance, if... Well, if- one of the challenges that we have is that in our day, uh, there has been such an undertow of language deconstruction mm-hmm. uh, that the whole question of reality or whatever reality is to you or that you make up your own reality mm-hmm. and your own meaning, that is being force-fed mm-hmm. to a generation uh, that has left them, I think, uh, to the point of mindlessness. Mm-hmm. How do we know anything is true? Yeah. But we do have this conviction. I think you and I talked about this before, which is really um, also um, under undergirding uh, and, and foundational to even the discussion about hermeneutics. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It is intellectual. Mm-hmm. And we do follow certain intellectual guidelines, uh, like the uh, searching out, you know, the the original languages and trying to understand better and better uh, various study mechanisms that we have for that. But it is supernatural. Hmm. At the very foundational level, the scriptures are given to us as a supernatural product of God mm-hmm. and that it requires for a right understanding, for a true understanding, uh, for a personal understanding, it requires the witness of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Uh, the the spirit witnessing to the the spiritual meaning mm. of what the scriptures say. Now, people can understand and dispute about the history of what scripture says, about the various historical epics or stories, about the persons who are in scripture. All these things have been debated, disputed. Um, but for Christian believers, we start with that foundation that the word of God is true, that it is knowable, that the Holy Spirit is the divine interpreter and that he witnesses to the consistency of what Scripture says. Mm. So that gets at something that I think um, I've I've termed the the disposition of hermeneutics. How what what disposition do you have as you are approaching the Scriptures? Um, are you are you practicing a hermeneutics of trust or a hermeneutics of suspicion? And those two approaches to interpretation have two very different dispositions. One disposition, our hermeneutics of suspicion, comes at interpretation um, from a level of autonomy. You know, you are basically mm-hmm. arbitrating and deciding um, through through your own process of reason or your own critical approaches, um, whatever it is, you're having to decide what is true and what is not true about uh, and what is helpful and what is not helpful about what scripture is presenting. So you end up really uh, determining the meaning yourself. Um, usually this approach uh, has its own kinds of questions that it's bringing to the Bible um, instead of allowing the Bible to give give the questions to ask. (laughs) And when you approach the scripture with a hermeneutic of trust, you're trusting that this is God's word. You're trusting that it's given to us in a way that's knowable, understandable, and applicable. When you approach scripture with that disposition, you're allowing God to speak through his word to you, to give you the right questions to ask, and to give you the right orientation. 
So that's the second thing that um, that I think is significant. The first is what disposition do you have? And the second is what orientation do you have? How are you oriented? What's orienting you um, mm-hmm. to the text and to the meaning that the text um, uh, has? And, uh, you know, I think of, uh, there's an example actually uh, of... Um, I think it was in 1914. I remember reading this example in a in a in a in a book by uh, James Smith, James K. A. Smith, um, and he was applying it differently. But I think the example applies helpfully here. He was he was recounting this episode of two uh, two ships. This was in 1914. Um, it was the Nantucket and the Monroe. They were steamships, and um, and somehow um, one of the ships ships. Um, veered off of its course and it created a, you know, it caused a collision and many sailors died. You know, one of the ships sank into the Atlantic and, and, uh, I think there was over 40 sailors died, um, and, you know, drowned or froze in the, in the cold waters of the Atlantic while they were doing an investigation afterwards. And they, and they came to find that one of the captains was using a compass that was off calibration by two degrees. And, um, and it, and it had veered him off course and it, maybe it was a foggy, you know, morning or foggy night, whatever it was, but he was not on the course he should have been on and it caused this collision Mm -hmm. and it was just a two degree error. But what you realize Mm -hmm. is when your orientation is off, even at the very beginning, if it's just off two degrees and I was doing some math with my oldest daughter for homeschool the other day and, and we were using our compass and everything. And I wanted to show her, I wanted to give her this example. And so we took our compass out and we made a two degree angle and we started drawing out the angle. And then mm-hmm. we put more pieces of paper out and drew the long, you know, drew the, um, the lines across the pieces of paper. And we got this sort of whole spread. And what, what she realized is the further you went, the bigger the, the deviation, the greater the deviation. Right. And mm-hmm. so our orientation, what is orienting us in our interpretation matters. And if it's off just a little bit, as you get down the road of interpretation, it can cause big, big errors. And so I want to talk a little bit about what is it, what's the magnetic pull in scripture? What, what's drawing us, Mm -hmm. what's the center magnetic pull of the Bible? And, Mm -hmm. um, identifying that I think is going to be greatly helpful as we, as we attempt to interpret and develop specifically covenant theology. What is scripture pulling us towards? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in one of the earlier episodes, we talked about how through the mediation of the new covenant, Jesus Christ brings the gospel to perfection. Mm -hmm. And so the centrality of Christ, I mean, this is what the Holy Apostle Paul says, that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And that gives us that center focus. That gives us the hub around which everything else orients. And that's why I think that we look back into the scriptures with the understanding of who Jesus Christ is as the mediator of the covenant, Mm -hmm. as the anointed prophet, priest, and king. So everything that we see covenantally in the way that we understand Scripture from creation on is brought uh, to its meaning through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is central and foundational to the incarnation, to the God-man. Uh, the original creation of Adam and Eve is central to 
uh, the doctrine of salvation in Jesus as the last Adam. Mm. So it all ties into who Jesus Christ is and how we understand what he has done and is continuing to do uh, covenantally. Mm. And that, that draws a distinction, too, in terms of how we understand Scripture covenantally mm-hmm. uh, in, in reference to being more than just uh, various historical mm. stories mm. Or, or various personal stories. Mm. Uh, it ties it together in purpose and meaning, not only now, but also for the hope that we have for the hereafter uh, and, and what is coming in the promise of consummation. Uh, that is even greater and better and more wowing Mm. than the original creation. Mm. So those things are all tied together and woven together uh, to bring a a message that is understandable and knowable. So when we think about um, our orientation um, in Scripture, um, Scripture itself provides that for us. Um, and you think about this, I, th- I think about Hebrews particularly when, when, when we're thinking, okay, how would you defend, uh, the statement that the, the magnetic center of scripture is Christ himself, that Christ is a center and, uh, and is, is the, is the magnetic pool of all of our interpretive, uh, attempts, all of our hermeneutical attempts at understanding what scripture is about and what it's telling us. Well, at the beginning of Hebrews, has that statement of 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 in the past, God has revealed Himself. God has communicated Himself. Spoken to us. He's spoken <laughs> to us in various ways, right? And we think about, of course, what he's referring to the known communication from God at that time would have been the old the Old Testament. What we understand is the Old Testament, but He says, in these last days, you know, now God has spoken and revealed Himself through His Son Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Hebrews goes on to explain how Jesus is the the greater than. He's the greater than Solomon. He's the greater temple. Mm-hmm. He is the fulfillment. He is what all of these things are pointing to. In a sense, he's he was what all of these things were being pulled towards, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so, it, it gives us this orientation that Jesus is now the full re- revelation and the the central revelation, the central way that God reveals himself and communicates himself um, to us. And of course, we get this from Jesus's own testimony. We think of the, um, you think of the, uh, the Emmaus road, um, you know, incident um, in Luke chapter 24. And you, you know, you have these disciples who are coming back from the empty tomb and, uh, Jesus appears to them, and of course, at first they they don't recognize who he is. And uh, he says to them, "O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Because they're downcast, right? Their mm-hmm. their their savior is is the supposed savior didn't turn out to be <laughs> what they were expecting. Um, mm-hmm. He's been crucified, and now his tomb is empty. Um, and he says, you, you're foolish because you were... Dare we say their interpretive expectations right. <laughs> had to be had to be readjusted. Right. And, and that's exactly <laughs> what he's doing. He's reorienting their expectations yeah. and saying, you, you, you got it wrong, guys. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you didn't realize yeah. that all of the prophets, all the prophets have spoken was, was 
was directed and pulled towards me and your compass was off a bit. And so mm-hmm. he says, was it, wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's a rhetorical question, mm-hmm. but it's really an admonition, isn't it? He's like, mm-hmm. you, you should have, you should have realized that this was the question that scripture was pointing you to. Mm-hmm. You've been asking your own mm-hmm. questions about how to restore an earthly kingdom, about how to restore uh, uh, David's uh, heir on the, on the earthly mm-hmm kingdom of of Israel. What you didn't realize was the whole time scripture was pointing to some more significant questions. And so after mm-hmm. this, he basically has to retrain them, reteach them, reorient them. And so in Luke, it goes on, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So mm-hmm. there you have Jesus. And, and that's repeated in the upper room mm-hmm, mm-hmm. also. Yeah. Uh, Jesus appears to uh, his um, remaining apostles, disciples in the upper room, and mm-hmm. uh, a similar conversation takes place. Right. And in all the scriptures yeah. of the old old covenant, he uh, uh, relates them to himself and the fulfillment. But that this is what God had promised, and they need to interpret and understand that mm-hmm. now in light of the new covenant. Yeah. Um, I think that's also valuable to us uh, recognizing that we're not uh, reading into or we're not uh, importing into the old uh, t- covenant scriptures when we take New Testament, New Covenant understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, that that brings us uh, the clarity to better understand yeah. what uh, it was intended for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this happens several times. It happens uh, on the beach when... Uh, when 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 mm-hmm. he asks and Jesus, you know, after his, his uh, after his uh, resurrection, um, you know, they're they're cooking a meal of fish, which I love that that whole scene is like I'm. Yeah, well, yeah. Jesus is cooking them fish yeah. while they're out on the boat, right. yeah, fishing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and he does the same thing. He he opens in the scriptures uh, for them and mm-hmm. and 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 shows them, reorients them how the scriptures were speaking about the things that had come to pass. And that will come to pass uh, because of him. So we have permission, like you were saying, from Scripture itself to make sure our compass is oriented and calibrated towards Jesus as we're interpreting Old Covenant Scripture, mm-hmm. um, as we're interpreting New Covenant Scripture. We need to be centered on and and pulled, oriented, directed towards Christ himself. And when we talk about, um, as Paul talks about preaching Christ and him crucified, uh my my understanding, he's talking about the the whole orbed reality of the crucified Christ. That it's not uh, reduced to a passion narrative. Mm-hmm. I think that's sometimes misunderstood. Um, but we preach the full orbed meaning of the crucified Christ, and that includes not only the crucifixion, but his death, burial, mm-hmm. his resurrection, his ascension, and glorification. And as I keep mm-hmm. emphasizing, what Jesus continues and what he is doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we want to emphasize the reality of uh, the historical reality of Jesus uh, and the crucifixion uh, and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that was a, a prime subject of apostolic preaching, the resurrected right. Christ. Right. But the implications of that and those implications go not only forward in our better understanding of the new covenant, but also they go forward in uh, connected to the fulfillment of the old covenant. One of the things, uh, again, interpretive 
interpretively that um, I think is important to emphasize is that covenant is more than promise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes it's reduced to that. Mm -hmm. And when people talk about covenant there, it's a, you know, promise or it becomes a cause and effect Mm -hmm. kind of um, viewpoint of relationship with God cause and effect. God made this promise. And therefore this is what that promise means. And God is bound to do that. Uh, That leads Mm -hmm. folks astray in understanding Again, the nature of Scripture and the application and the covenantal dynamics that are involved. Uh, you mentioned Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews specifically talks about the fact that God's promises, and, and as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul also does this in Romans 9-11, through 11, that God's promises are not invalidated because God has oriented changes. Mm-hmm. I should have said God has ordained changes, right. I guess I should have yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so how can that be so? Because when you think of covenant promises, you're thinking of, you know, concrete, you said this, um, and, uh, that means you have to make good on your promise. Well, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes we have a truncated view of what, of what, of what that really is all about. And we, Mm -hmm. again, we have to, we have to have a disposition that allows God to set the agenda for his covenantal mm-hmm. purposes and his covenantal promises. And what we find in the new covenant is, you know, God has sometimes an unexpected way of fulfilling his promises um, mm-hmm. where he can say things like, um, I can raise uh, children of Abraham from stones, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, and, and not, not all who are physically descended from Abraham are Abraham's children. Um, yeah. and so sometimes he a has very a, important argument yeah. in scripture, particularly yeah. in light of the new covenant, yeah. a very important argument. Uh, also, I think, uh, that passage you just mentioned about Jesus saying, uh, raising up children, of Abraham from the stones, that was also an offensive statement to the mm-hmm. arrogance and to the pride of the Pharisees, um, right. in, in terms of basically, uh, the, the common as dirt claim that you mm-hmm. have. You know, and, and I don't know that we pick up quite the offense that uh, that that rebuked them in terms of what they were claiming for their flesh. Right. We are the descendants of Abraham, right. you know, by the flesh. Yeah, yeah. So once again, uh, that's a real important demonstration about how a hermeneutical approach, an interpretive approach, really missed the mark, and mm-hmm. um, and missed the mark in such a way that. Necessitated Jesus himself saying harsh words towards those who had hermeneutically deviated from mm-hmm. the central orientation of Jesus and salvation by and through him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, I mean, there's sort of a a light way to understand hermeneutical error, you know, and, and it's sort of like you know, if I if 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 my wife says, hey, uh, we're going to have our friends for dinner. Um, okay, well, I can take that two different ways, right? And um, and it's kind of a funny way to show that my interpretation of that, um, you know, could have real real detrimental <laughs> effect. Are we having our friends for dinner, <laughs> or are we going to have them <laughs> as company for dinner? Um, and that's that. But when we're coming to scriptural interpretation, um, the the error that can be involved there, um, you know 
it really Jesus had some harsh words to say about those who had made mm-hmm. some 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 fundamental errors and even led astray those who should have been seeking a savior um, instead of mm-hmm. uh, relying upon the flesh and fleshly things for their justification. Mm-hmm. And we want to mm-hmm. avoid that by having the right hermeneutical and the proper scriptural hermeneutical approach. Mm-hmm. All right. Any more to say about that, Dad? Well, I, I guess I would also mention that um, sort of along the lines of what you were saying about Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees is that they were recognized as teachers. They had authoritative influence mm-hmm. among the people. Now, we need to understand that Christ has set down authority uh, upon and through his church. And so uh, we do recognize biblically and historically that there are those whom uh, Christ has called and the Holy Spirit has fitted to be teachers, mm. to be uh, expounders of Scripture. Uh, James warns us that they have a, a higher uh, accountability and a greater mm-hmm. and stricter uh, judgment from God. Uh, we're also warned by Jesus and the apostles uh, that we test those who claim to be uh, speaking authoritatively in that way. But we should also have a regard for that order that Christ has set down upon his church. Um, so... That should um, give us a measure of, of um, uh, humility that we uh, test those things that are being taught with the Holy Scriptures, um, that we build upon those faithful witnesses and teachers uh, across uh, church history, um, that there is a, a great wealth of value in what has been preserved for us, not only in the Holy Scriptures that are set apart and are unique, but also in uh, Christ's presence with His church historically, and even in um, historic creeds and confessions that have confronted Mm -hmm. errors that are of a serious nature, uh, as you were saying. Not something that's just Mm -hmm. lighthearted or, you know, we missed a a, a secondary point Mm -hmm. here, but major defining essential orthodox teachings that define Christianity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So there needs to be a regard for that. Um, And that, I think, goes back to the opening question about that sort of individual subjectivity of uh, everybody uh, saying, well, this is what the Bible means to me, uh, or that we all have uh, a radical independent Mm -hmm. um, conscience Mm -hmm. of well, I, I only believe what I believe the Bible says. Right. Uh, you can believe wrong things. Yeah, uh, You can't believe anything you want to about God and be accepted of Him. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, this I guess is a lighthearted example, but um, here are three scripture passages. Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise, and whatever you do, do quickly. All right. <laughs> so we know that's not what the Bible teaches. Right. But those are three scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you come up with many other examples. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this was part one of a two part episode on hermeneutics. We hope you enjoyed the episode and stay tuned for part two. If you enjoyed the conversation, please consider giving us a five star ratings on iTunes. It helps to boost our visibility for those looking for quality theological content. Also, check us out on Facebook at NC Convo. And look forward to our website launch very soon. That will be at ncconvo.com. Again, thanks for joining us.